welcome to the Inside Rare Diseases monthly podcast from Centagene, where we are on a mission for life-changing answers. I'm your host, Ben Legg, and this month we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the completion of the Human Genome Project. So, on today's episode, we're going to be discussing what the effects of that has meant for patients around the world. So, without further ado, let's begin today's episode entitled 20 Years On, The Human Genome Project and Rare Diseases. As you may be aware, the Human Genome Project has researchers, had researchers rather, all around the world working together to generate the very first sequence of the human genome, and it took between 1990 and 2003. The results of this unprecedented work, it was a sequence that accounted for more than 90% of the human genome. But as we found out, that was only just the beginning. So to find out more about how this changed the landscape for patients, we've invited two experts. Of course, you'll remember Professor Peter Bauer, MD, from our past episodes. Peter serves as the Chief Medical and Genomic Officer at Centagene and has authored more than 250 peer-reviewed publications in neurogenetics, oncogenetics, cardiogenetics, and sequencing technology. Hi, Peter. How are hey, you? Ben. Uh, hi, Good to talk, discuss, take this 30, 35 minutes once again. I'm uh, thrilled to go into what is the basis of what we're doing. Thank you so much for letting me strap you to the chair once again. I appreciate it. Um, our second guest today is Centagene's Vice President of Medical Genetics, Dr. George Pinto Basto. George's previous experience includes serving as the Director of the Molecular Diagnostics and Genomics Labs at CGC Genetics. And he earned his medical degree from the University of Porto, where he specialized in rare disease genetics, molecular genetics, neurogenetics, and dysmorphology. George, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ben, for having me. Very excited about this. Not as excited as I am, I can tell you. <laughs> so, look, I, I want to pick your brains today. You know, the, the Human Genome Project was, of course, this immense thing. I mean, some people can compare it to, to the internet in terms of how it changed, you know, the, the landscape and the world in which we're living. So, I mean, can you tell us, George, what do you think was important about it and, and what did it tell us uh, in 2003? Well, it was actually something huge at the time because... As an endeavor, it was um, took over or about 30, 13 years, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and currently, it takes us a few hours to sequence the genome of many tens of patients simultaneously. So, we are talking about an era where the technology was not there, mm -hmm. right? So, this from from that perspective, is it was actually something huge and incredibly difficult at at the time. So, it was something that provided. Tons of information. There were a lot of assumptions that were not exact, exactly predictive. And that was, we could only know that because of the results of the Human Genome Project. So, and it was extremely helpful to provide the first good reference of the human genome. So that could be used for, I would say, hundreds and hundreds of different applications from mm -hmm. diagnostics mm -hmm. to research. And it was really a landmark. No, I mean, the, the very fact that, as you say, it went from 13 years to a few hours, I mean, it, it's impossible to describe, right? Um, P Peter, would you agree? Yeah. Oh, well, not only agree, I think, George, you touched two important points. One is uh, technology and 13 years to a few hours. I would even stress that without the investments and the ambition to get to the first human genomes, we wouldn't have 
had that technology drive. And everything we are doing right now is as well an outcome of this program that uh, we have next generation sequencing. We are thinking about a technology that just has proven to change the world of molecular medicine. So the new uh, way we, we figure out we should diagnose and offer treatment. And the other interesting thing as well, uh, it's kind of a flashback when I've seen the paper 23 years ago, all these assumptions we had beforehand, and then you could just read, hmm, no, it's not 50,000 genes, it's not 40,000 genes, it's maybe something between 15 and 20,000, still with an ambiguity, because a kind of the basic questions you would like to ask, how many, what, is still open and not very open. So there's a lot of this definition and clarity now since 23 years. But mm -hmm. would you uh, dare to say we know it now? Uh, good question. I, I would say much, much better. Still, <laughs> we, we have a model of the human genome that is much more refined than it was 23 years ago. And of course, much more refined than it was before we had this first complete draft. But it's still a lot of science needed to, to work on that. But that's the nice thing about having progress and on the same times, even more questions. We see it there. Of course, the, the, the more questions you get answered, the more questions you have, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's clear that that was just the beginning. I mean, that took, you know, 13 years. It's 20 years on. How would you describe the, the progress that has been made since then, I mean, you, we've talked about how it's gone to hours and stuff, but we described it as only having, well, not only, but 90% of the genome was mapped then. Um, the complexities that we've discovered since then, I mean, what would you say have been some of the key learnings in the last 20 years? Yeah, if you look into the application of the human genome, it's really, it opened a new industry, which is then kind of offering really genetic testing at scale, no longer going from a suspected disease to select a test, but really uh, having all the information at hand for an interpretation to come up with an assumption or even a defined diagnosis for a patient with a rare genetic disease. And as well, uh, for me as well, very important to know most of the possibilities you can as well exclude after having seen the data, which means if you don't think it's genetic, we have been getting better and better to as well collect evidence for, for these arguments. And why is this important? This is important because uh, a genetic diagnosis, uh, of course, is something we can put in a context for prognosis, uh, helping the patients to learn uh, what will be the future with the symptoms he faces and what is potential therapies. But it's as well very important since when we have a link into genetics, we are always talking about families, which means there is more than just one individual that should learn about that or might have uh, benefits or risks to understand and take into the personal uh, decisions in life. And so this has opened a tremendous uh, space of as well informed decisions. And I think that's a value we share every day with the patients and uh, our partners, the physicians that trust us in the, the diagnostics of these patients. 
Absolutely. Um, George, would you agree with that? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and, and the applications of this is countless, actually. So, but if we focus even on the clinical side, and although it was not in 2003, the impact was really, you know, there. It took a few more years, but at, at least, let's say, 10 years or probably a little bit less for some applications, but mm -hmm. let's say the, the huge impact was around 2012-13 where, where NGS technology was really adopted the clinical as a clinical grade test. And the, this possibility of querying at the same time, not one or two genes, but the whole genome or the whole exome simultaneously looking for answers for patients for families mm -hmm. it was had a tremendous impact in not only because it, it was made available in a short period of time the and also shortened the, the diagnostic odyssey for for thousands of and thousands of patients and families and that has a huge impact in, in the life of patients with brain disorders being able to provide answers to allow for proper genetic counseling Mm -hmm. as well. So that has a tremendous impact in the it's, clinical management. Yeah, maybe, maybe George, uh, we should as well mention here, or maybe as well a little bit discuss, um, one is this aspect. But we, we've seen as well that even knowing about these genes and what is the wild type, which we call the reference, so uh, it's not the perfect human that we describe as the reference is just one human with good genetic factors and as well uh, variation. I think it's clear that we learned as well to accept that we are strong because we are so diverse <laughs> as the humans uh, globally and that this variability is as well a threshold for us to explore. So there was an expectation 23 years ago that we now have the book of life and then we will just come from read it and then you can answer those questions. And what uh, in reality happened is that we realized that we had to rebuild a lot of the models that were too simplistic after we got access to the reference genome. And then as we realized that this variation tells us something about the flexibility of, uh, I would call it maybe the human nature or our heritage, but as well the, 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 the strength in this huge yeah, diversity. And so one of the very catchy observations was as well that uh, comparability of a human genome with uh, our evolutionary uh, presence, which is then the monkeys or something like that, this is sometimes closer than the diversity among humans, which tells us as well that we are really rich in what we have established. And this is still uh, something to better understand as well use as a learning, maybe even use as a humanity learning, and then take from there as well uh, lessons into uh, how can we help those that have maybe problems with solutions that have already been built and show how we can balance and take that into uh, the, the bigger picture. So I was as well always uh, helped with an, an observation that there's no determinism in genetics. It's always, it might be 
very relevant, super relevant, but you cannot 100% predict what will happen in the future if you know the genes. And that's as well something where uh, there's a lot of uh, hope or however you call it when you deal with patients that mm -hmm. you can still have. Wow. Yeah, look, it's it's really, really interesting. Um, I mean, the diversity is a topic that we've we've touched on before, of course, but I mean, the the variation within that, of course, it's it's, it's mind-boggling because the point that you make is there's not one standard template, right? But no, very interesting insights. Thank you, Peter. I mean, the, the other thing is, of course, we're, we're making discoveries every day. I mean, I look into my, my email subscriptions and I'm coming with all sorts of new um, things from PubMed or peer review publications that are coming out with a new way of looking at something or a, a new variation that's been discovered. But of course, you two know a, a lot more about than me. Um, can you talk a little bit about what some of the, the more recent advancements have looked like, maybe in the past months or, or year or so that you think are, are of significance? Let me perhaps start with a comment to our previous discussion of course because no this because this will be a good segue for the for your question now mm, mm, mm. i think so you mentioned uh, at the intro that over or just a little bit over 90 percent mm -hmm. of the reference was so in the human genome project was um sequenced mm -hmm. but closing that gap took a lot of time so and only the recent years we were able to close further that gap at significant level. If you Being tell me we're at 91%, I'm going to laugh a lot. No, we are not. <laughs> much further, but only very, very recent years, in fact. Wow. wow. So, uh, and with some initiatives like the Telomere to Telomere um, Consortium and, and um, others uh, similar, so they were able to really understand a bit more and sequence regions of the genome that are extremely difficult to to get a hold of and really understand how they are, you know, structured because they are very repetitive, but we are getting there. And, and from the, the very top to the very bottom of, of each chromosome, we can now have the, let's say, the full sequence. But this is just the beginning, uh, just a model. It does not capture at all the whole diversity, variation, uh, and might I add, normal, whatever that means, normal variation, but um, of, of, of the of the whole human species, right? So this is another level that we are talking about. And uh, so we know, let's say, the basics. We knew the basics back then, or we learned about that in 2003. Then we refined it during the, the next few years. And now we are becoming more aware and keen on capturing this diversity, um, the the variation across individuals across populations uh, all over the world and and this is actually the normal evolution of, of a project like the human genome project. So are we talking about human genome project 2.0 diversity plus? I mean, is there going to be a, a map for every kind of region? What, what's that going to look like? Yeah, so, it's interesting. Yeah, you answer first. No, no, go, 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 I think the diversity we will learn can only be represented if we have dozens, if not hundreds of maps. <laughs> and mm. then you have to, if an individual patient is then analyzed, you have to find the best matching map <laughs> and compare against that. But um, what basically this tells us is that 
every individual, of course, has uh, parts, or, or let's say maybe at least every family has part of a human genome that are just this family. And they, they might be small, but relevant, sometimes significant. Uh, and that's still something that we cannot easily represent because usually what we do is a little bit like in a big, big puzzle. <laughs> you have the reference and then you have your puzzle pieces and then you check which puzzle piece falls where at what place. But the, the awkward thing is after producing the data for an individual, usually let's say you have a, a puzzle with three billion pieces. Yeah. <laughs> And then sounds like after, my toddler's one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. after you've done that, unfortunately, it's not us; it's the computers doing that. You are left with 50 million pieces that just are on top on of what you have, uh, what you have already put into the picture. And then you ask yourself, mm, "What's that?" <laughs> uh, and this, at the moment, is nothing we can really include into our analysis. Although mm -hmm. we know that sometimes this is maybe exactly this portion that should give us a key to answering a, a medical question or whatever. So it's from the topic, it's clear that there is something we still haven't solved. Uh, we don't know the impact, but th that will be the, the fun or uh, the tough part for the next five, 10 years to come up with technology and uh, as well hustling uh, solutions to, to add that. And then every uh, picture we try to put together will have an aspect that is always a new one. Yeah. <laughs> like every uh, in, in phases or something else where you see similarities but then there's a difference that is just unique and as well a, a good learning from uh, the, the science of the last 20 30 years things tend to be very conserved and similar and a couple of small differences make it make everybody unique <laughs> Yeah, it's, look, it's a really interesting point you make. And I mean, to quote one of my wife's favorite maxims, the change the way you look at things and the way you look at uh, and the way the things you look at will change is part of what I'm seeing, part of what I'm hearing about often is trying different ways uh, of looking at the, the genome or, or the data that we're getting back from patients with, with different things and, and multiomics. You and I have talked about that before, Peter. Um, do you think, you know, some of these new ways of, of, of looking through diagnosis Diagnostics will you know answer some of those questions of the other 30 billion pieces of jigsaw on the floor definitely so we talked just now on the structure and kind of the huge target region that we know now represented in this genome reference but for a human being and for any organism a main question is when is this information necessary and available for which biological function? So you can start in uh, the fertilized egg. And then, uh, of course, there needs to be programs that make use of the genetic information and transform it into an organism, into a human being in the end with special uh, capabilities and maybe sometimes as well problems 
Now, uh, this process to translating the genome into the tissues and into function is uh, what is kind of the the, the, the paradigm of, of uh, the, the biology. So you, you have this information, but then you have to put it in other systems, which is uh, transcriptomics, RNA into proteins and then into uh, metabolisms and, and some structure. Yes, very formally spoken. But uh, uh, of course, uh, to predict which uh, genetic variants will have which effect when, we are still not able to to do that uh, with the data we have. And therefore, we need these layers between uh, the genome and kind of the the, uh, the organism to be built up as an additional observational data space. And so I think for genomic medicine, also it's called genomic medicine, in principle, it should be multi-omic medicine where we have these layers at hands to know not only whether there is a genetic variant, but as well whether this variant has any functional effect and what uh, severity this effect causes in an organism. So it's a story of adding even more complexity, but in the end as well, more information to be able to follow one molecular signal into the, the consequences and make sure that the observation is consistent and matches uh, kind of the clinical impressions you have from a patient. Maybe that was uh, very formal explained and I'm not sure <laughs> whether, George, you have a better example, but I think uh, in essence, uh, for me, the genome sequencing and availability of this reference is just the start mm -hmm. for uh, having precision medicine then built upon. So, that was so the, the, sorry, sorry the, because I, I, that was exactly what I was going to point out is that mm -hmm. the impact of all this that we're talking about in particular multiomics is for medicine and for treating patients, sorry, for managing patients, that's exactly the point I was going to make, is that it affects much more than, than just diagnostics. So it will be also about being able to predict other things that currently we are not able to, like how will uh, disease evolve, when it's going to start for late onset disorders as well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. these these uh, new insights will provide us additional layers of knowledge that will be translated to clinical practice as well. So it will be much more than just diagnostics. So jumping ahead, because that's where we are anyway, thematically, is is that what it'll look like in 20 years? Is that what we're going to be talking about? Oh, okay, we've finished the, the extra 10%, we've mapped the human genome, we've got a whole bunch of diverse models, um, we can now predict what the onset of a disease is going to be and, and, and what that uh, will look like based on longitudinal studies as well. What's next? Or, or, or is is that kind of the, the end date or end goal? What do you think, George? Well, first of all, I need 30 seconds just to get my crystal ball, but then <laughs> uh, but then I'll come back quickly and try to answer your, your question. So we, we are all, uh, you know, this this field is also so beautiful because of all the surprises that we get along the way and a lot of aha moments and some things that we were not even uh, able to predict in the end turn out to be real impactful in, in the um, for patients and 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 their families as, as well so most likely in the next few years 
we'll see the further development of, of this multiomics technology where we be able to link in the same test different layers of uh, and trying to understand the impact and the interaction of, of very genetic variation with transcriptomics with uh, metabolomics proteomics and be able to understand much better what is normal what leads to disease how it leads to disease what can we do about it what therapeutic targets can we develop or identify and then develop specific uh, approaches there as well this will be uh, let's say my prediction for the next for the next few years uh, tremendous uh, um, increase in the knowledge and understanding of how the human body works mm, no i think that makes sense and, and peter do you agree or are we going to have our first podcast showdown i think there's no showdown but uh, <laughs> just uh, to illustrate that i think if you would ask me today how is your genome doing today I would say, well, probably the same like 30 years ago. Yeah? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's just uh, the nice thing about the genome is it's uh, very, very stable. Probably even my grand-grandfather had uh, information I still carry, <laughs> mm. which is unchanged. Yeah? Do I know something about my grandfather and his health? No. <laughs> and so for me, uh, of course, the daily question is, Peter, how are you doing? Yeah, and and then uh, of course this a proxy for that to answer is not the genome. Also, it's an important information to to know in general. Yeah, but then every day I think we need much more these uh, flexible, uh, rapid changing uh, tools to say, uh, but you have fever or uh, you have uh, diabetes or you have uh, uh, a metabolic change that is resembled in this test. And then I say, oh, yeah, that's why I sleep so bad and, and things like that. Yeah? So uh, to, to explain what happens in our life, genome is of course, crucial, but it won't change uh, our lifespan while everything else might change. And therefore, I think it could even be that in the near future, it turns a little bit around that we do not talk a lot about the genome because it's just there and might be even enough to know the genomes of the parents, to know about the children uh, and so on. Yeah. But these other technologies that we now call the, the multi-omics will be our daily or at least our uh, regular companions uh, throughout life to understand, make decisions, modify, uh, avoid risk, uh, improve health, things like that. And for us as uh, I would say at the moment, geneticists, probably sooner or later, we will as well a step broader and say it, it's more multi-omicists. Uh, I don't mm. know how to call mm -hmm. it, uh, mm -hmm. but this this is to come, I would expect. I'm interested as well to, to make that come yeah, <laughs> and happen. Uh, but so all the learning we've had, I think it's essential to know as well how technology waves happen in medicine and what is usually good decisions uh, preparing for that and what is dead ends you might uh, find fascinating uh, when looking into it, but you shouldn't go there. So I think that's on top something that might be an outcome of the Human Genome Project that we learned in principle, our technological disruption drives a whole field into 
uh, new competencies, <laughs> but uh, now we, we need the next layer to be built. And uh, that's what I would expect. So um, we have to change. Uh, everybody has to change. But this uh, genome business uh, will be a little bit done without being the expert for the next level. Yeah. Mm, no, well put. So, look, we're uh, we're going to be coming up to time shortly, gentlemen. So, you know, and our listeners know, I always want to uh, come away with some kind of concrete takeaway and, or learning that um, that we can kind of leave them with. So, my question to you both is for, for any physicians listening, for any patients or their families listening, for, for anybody who's, who's potentially looking for, for treatments, in terms of, you know, if there's one thing you could leave them with to think about, today in, in terms of you know what, what the, the topic what would that be peter uh, that that's a good question and uh, also uh, i had the other podcast and you ask i think i'm struggling a little bit in giving you the one thing about it i think uh, <laughs> it seems to be very determined deterministic and mm -hmm. uh, now we have 99 percent at least in our current model of the mm -hmm. information available but i think it doesn't tell us a lot about all those diseases we still can't treat, which means it's a fantastic resource and I would love to have a similar framework for those dimensions of variability in life, which we have not mapped out with the same precision. And so don't overestimate kind of the robustness there without knowing that it's just the start for the hypothesis it's not a de determination of uh, of an answer and that's what i learned and what i would like to keep open to as well have mm. uh, still the, the the fun in research but as well the openness when talking with people that seem to be kind of bound to their genes that that's only part of what i can see well i've certainly learned that today thank you peter um george what are your thoughts I will probably focus on the fact that sometimes <clears throat> genome sequencing as a genetic test is viewed as a, a one-off um, test. And I would like to, to highlight that exactly because of what we have been discussing, all the advances and, and further knowledge that we are every day collecting new evidence and, and new approach and learning more and more each day, it should not be looked at as a one-off test. So if unfortunately uh, the, the answer is not there for your patient, let's let's keep on working on, on that data. Let's review it some months or, or a couple of years down the line, because maybe now at that time, we will be able to, to find the, the answer for, for the diagnosis because technology still evolves, uh, is evolving at a very fast pace. And, uh, and also what we know about the, the genome, how it works and uh, new genes associated with disease are, are reported almost every day on average, by the way. So it, it's worthwhile to go back and have a look at uh, the data that was collected maybe one, two, three, four years ago, because maybe the answer is there now. So it should not be a one-off test. Well put. We're discovering more every day. So, yeah. No, thank you. Well, look, I'm afraid that with that final thought, we're out of time. But look, we really appreciate you both taking so much time out of, out of your busy schedules. So, uh, George and Peter... Thank you for your, your insights, your, your thoughts. Um, you've certainly put to rest a few thoughts that I had on this, which you've corrected, so I, I appreciate that. Um, so thank you to both of you. 
You're welcome. Thank you. Ben, that was fun. Thank you. And with that, we conclude this month's episode of the Inside Rare Diseases monthly podcast from Centergene, where we are on a mission for life-changing answers. I'm your host, Ben Legg, and today we were going inside rare diseases with today's episode entitled 20 Years On, The Human Genome Project and Rare Diseases. Join us next month for the next episode of our podcast as we continue on our mission for life-changing answers. We hope that today's episode helped you see inside rare diseases a little bit today. And if it did, you can help us. Help to raise awareness by telling a friend, write a review on your preferred podcasting platform, or you can even share the episode on social media. I hope you join us for our next episode. So until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>